Good morning, everybody. We are so glad you could make it here this morning, especially those of you who just changed your plans last minute and said, you know what, church is on, we're going to be here. If you're not familiar, we didn't have power until about like an hour ago, so we weren't really sure what was going to happen. But we're glad that you could be here today. Uh, we're glad everybody is joining us online. We're glad that you could tune in and be with us as well. It's the Christmas season, and it's a complicated season. I think this morning is a good microcosm of the Christmas season because everybody's been running around like crazy, and sometimes that's what the Christmas season feels like to us because we have these dreams and these plans implanted in our brains by the Hallmark Channel that we can somehow get everybody under one roof and finagle all these different schedules, and we're all just, it's all going to work out. It's going to be great, right? But that's a really hard thing to pull off because our schedules are complicated this time of year. Or maybe the complication comes in a different form. Maybe it's the gift giving. Because you're the kind of person that wants to make sure everybody has the same number of packages under the tree. Or maybe like it all, like everybody has the same dollar amount spent and you're trying to get what they want, but balance everything between all these different ideas. And that, that's really complicated and it's kind of a complex thing to pull off. And then you throw other stuff into the mix. You've got holiday parties from work or get togethers with friends and, or like Christmas concerts at school for your kids. And, and all of these other things all just kind of start swirling around and you've got 24 days to squeeze it all in. That's complicated. For some of us, Christmas can be complex for different reasons, though. It's not so much a scheduling thing. In fact, sometimes we wish we had a little more scheduling and busyness in our holidays because for some of us, well, there just aren't that many people to celebrate with. And sometimes the emotional complexity of this season can weigh on us. Maybe it's grief. Uh, maybe it's depression. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's stress. There's a lot of things that start to swirl around this time of year, and it gets complicated because, as the song goes, it's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. And people all around us, and on TV, and on the radio, they sound so happy and so cheerful, and we feel this pressure to just be joyful during the Christmas season, and yet inside, well, all we really want to do is just kind of get away from it. And that's complicated to navigate. It's a complex time of year. But it shouldn't really surprise us because really the rest of our lives are just as complicated the other 360 some odd days, right? I mean, life is messy. We've got complicated social issues to try to navigate. I mean, there's a war breaking out on the other side of the world. Who, if anybody, are we supposed to support in that? We've got issues right here in our own country and culture we're trying to navigate, uh, whether it be transgenderism or racism or social relations and the complexity that comes along with that. There's a lot of questions that people are asking, like, well, how should I feel about this? How does that shake out in, in actuality and in practice? It's a complicated thing to try to navigate. And then we've got personal relationships to try to navigate. Maybe it's messy family situations. Maybe it's strained relationships with, uh, with our neighbors. Maybe it's a, a complicated health issue. We're not really happy about the diagnosis. We're trying to navigate what that looks like. Maybe we've got financial pressures in our life, and we're, we're trying to kind of figure out, how, how do I make sense of this? Life can be messy. It can be complex and complicated. And rarely, if ever, are there really straightforward answers to things. Like, this would all be easier if it, life were just filled with binary choices. Yes, no right, wrong, black, white, this or that. But so many of the complex matters in our lives are oftentimes nuanced. And it takes time to think about and to contemplate and to reflect upon and to try to, to find a good, godly direction 
in the midst of all this mess. How do we do that? Is anybody else suffocating under the pressure this morning? <laughs> life can be complicated. And this morning, what we're going to talk about as we continue our sermon series on the life of Jesus is how do we find a godly direction forward in the midst of the mess? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 22. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're continuing this series a year-ish with Jesus where we're just going through the book of Matthew and we're learning about the life of Christ. What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a part of his kingdom? And today we're in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be looking at kind of a messy situation that Jesus had to deal with in his own day and age. If you don't have your Bible this morning, you can look the screen behind. Uh, you can download the FCC Monmouth app to your mobile device, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes tool. I hope it's working. Our Wi-Fi got kicked off whenever the power went out. We've really tried to get that going, so if it's not there, I apologize. But you can check that out on the app as well. So Matthew chapter 22, let's take a look at this complicated situation that Jesus is dealing with, and then let's start to understand it, maybe glean some direction forward from our own lives, shall we? This is Matthew chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 15. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. So tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? This is the complicated question that Jesus has to address, a question about taxes, right? But we need to understand what this tax really was to understand the complications and the complexity here. So we need to remember, maybe this is a little foreign to us, but if you were a conquered people in the Roman Empire, you belonged to the empire, but you weren't citizens of the empire. Roman citizenship was actually a very uh, reserved and elite status for people, usually who were born in the city of Rome. Uh, whose parents may have been citizens of Rome, or if you uh, had certain connections, you might have access to that status. But everybody who wanted to attain Roman citizenship had to pay a hefty price for it. So this is not something that everybody just automatically got. And if you weren't a citizen of Rome, then you had the privilege of paying this tribute tax. It was a tax that Caesar levied on all people that were conquered, and this was a way of showing their allegiance to the empire was by paying this tax. So for the Jewish people, this was just kind of insult to injury because they hated this tax. It was a common reminder that they were a conquered people, that they were not living out this destiny that God had mapped out for them so long ago, that they were not living under their own independent kingdom. It was a source of frustration. It was a source of angst. And to make it all even just worse, this tax went to go support an emperor who called himself the son of God, who paraded around as if he was a divine being, and it fueled his war machine that really just served his vanity project. They hated it. So you can imagine maybe he even, he even hearing this question, Jesus would say, no, we, we shouldn't pay that tax because what good God-honoring, self-respecting Jew would want to pay that tax? But as you might imagine, it's a little more complicated than that. Because if you didn't pay this tax, it was a sign of open rebellion. And the Roman emperor could and would execute you if you were an individual, or if you were a group of people, he would send the army down and smash you into submission. In fact, this actually happened 
about 40 years after Jesus in the year 70 AD. It wasn't taxation, but it was another revolt. Uh, the Jewish people had this reputation for being very hard to govern. And after one too many revolts, the emperor sent General Titus down to Jerusalem, and they just pounded them into submission, humiliated them entirely and utterly. They destroyed the city. They tore the temple of God down brick from brick and carted off all of its treasures to Rome. You can actually go see a monument built to Titus in honor of that, the Arc de Triumph. It depicts the Roman soldiers carrying back the menorah from the temple. It's well-attested archaeological fact. And it's an event that the Jewish people really to this day still have not fully recovered from. It was traumatic. And that's what happens when you revolt against the emperor. Israel didn't stand a chance of survival. Of course you needed to pay the tax. Otherwise you would cease to exist. This is a complicated question, isn't it? And that's why they asked Jesus this question. Sort of a danged if you do, danged if you don't. Because if he says, no, don't pay the tax, he's an insurrectionist. And the government will kill him. But if he says, oh yeah, we should definitely pay the tax. Well, then he's a Roman sympathizer. And his whole message of the kingdom of God and being faithful to God, well, it seems to be just sort of undermined. And he's a hypocrite. What a messy circumstance. And when we look a little bit deeper at the people involved in this conversation, we can start to get a glimpse of why we choose the kind of paths forward that we do in the midst of our own complications. We might even see ourselves in these people a little bit. What they show us is that when you get right down to it, how we navigate life's complexities stems directly from our priorities. In other words, the things that we value the most are going to dictate how we navigate the nuances in life. Let's take a look at these people. Let's understand all the different priorities that are involved here. Let's start with the Pharisees. They're the first group that we see. Who are the Pharisees? Well, the Pharisees were a group of conservative religious leaders in the Jewish community. And they served a really important purpose. They actually came into existence a few hundred years before the days of Jesus. And their job was to keep the Jewish people faithful to the Old Testament scriptures. Because if you read the Old Testament, God's people had this remarkable ability to just completely ignore everything that God told them and to go their own direction. And after about 1,500 years of this, this group of men got together and said, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't do that. If it says it, then that's what we should do. And so they kept Israel faithful to the scriptures. But over time, they developed their own traditions, their own party lines of thought, and became more concerned and focused on those than what the actual words of scripture had to say. And so they would encourage people to follow the party line and what you were supposed to do, and what you were supposed to think, and what you were supposed to believe. And this is a phenomenon that really isn't that strange to us because it still happens today in a lot of different ways. I mean, we can look at kind of the religious sphere of things. Just about 200 years ago, the Southern Baptist Conference, they separated from the General Baptist Conference around the time of the Civil War, as many things were being divided then. And it was over the issue of slavery. In fact, they founded their own seminary. It's still standing today, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's a fantastic school. It has kind of a messy heritage, as you might imagine. It was started by four gentlemen, all of whom were slave owners. Between them, they owned about 50 people. 
And they talked about the Christian merits of slavery. They talked about slavery as a God-ordained institution and, and made this very, you know, biblical-sounding case for why that practice was acceptable and expected and proper. Here's the, the funny thing, though. The, the abolition of slavery got its start in Europe, anyway, from William Wilberforce because of the teachings in the New Testament and in Scripture. Like, if you actually read the Bible, it acknowledges slavery was a thing. It certainly doesn't encourage it. In fact, it provides a trajectory where there's an expectation that it's going to disappear and be done away with. And so you have this tradition, this party line that you're supposed to follow that became more significant than what the actual scriptures taught. And that's, and by the way, we want to make clear the Southern Baptist Conference, they don't still affirm that. Like Southern Baptists, they don't believe that. They've come out, made a very detailed condemnation of their history, where it came from. So this is not a criticism of, of them, just a historical observation that this tendency we see in the Pharisees is still alive and well, not 200 years ago. It's still alive and well today. If we just look, it might be our group, our, our religious affiliation. It might be our political affiliation that dictates our thinking. Might be some other ideology that we ascribe to. It could be feminism, nationalism, populism, Marxism, whatever ism you want to put in there. There are party lines, things that you're supposed to think, things you're supposed to believe, things that you're supposed to accept, and all of these group affiliations. And whenever our priority is on these groups and our belonging to those groups, well, absolutely, that's going to have a big impact on how we navigate the complex issues of our lives, both generally and specifically. So the Pharisees, the party line was, Rome is bad. Not surprising, they all believed we should not be paying this tax. There's another group here, the Herodians. Those are probably a little less familiar to us. Maybe if we've been reading the Bible, we've at least come across the Pharisees. The Herodians, they were a group of Jewish nobles. They were kind of in seats of influence. And their loyalties lie with the Herods, the dynasty in charge of Israel at that time. If you remember the nativity story, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and he's born under the rule of a king named Herod, Herod Agrippa in this case, later known as Herod the Great. I'm going to tell you, nobody in Israel called him Herod the Great. He's a pretty awful guy, really. If you remember the story, he had all the babies in Bethlehem killed because he was trying to find this newborn Messiah. So Herod, he was an awful guy, but he's very politically connected, very talented politician. He wasn't even Jewish, and yet somehow he wound up in charge of the entire Jewish state. Kind of a remarkable thing when you think about it. Anyway, Herod died, and he had four sons, and his territory was divided up between them. They were called Tetrarchs, and you might read about Philip the Tetrarch. He's one of Herod's sons in the New Testament, and none of them were good people either. But they were well-connected people. In fact, one of them was a close personal friend of the emperor himself. And as long as the Herods were in charge of Israel, well, there was comfort to be had and there was money to be made for Jewish nobility. So not surprisingly, of course, they affirmed the tax and they affirmed Rome and they affirmed the status quo because it made them comfortable, made them wealthy. And that's a motivation I think you and I probably can resonate with even today. When our money is involved, it impacts our decision-making and the directions that we tend to go as far as the complexities of our own lives. Take a, an issue like a student loan forgiveness. That was in conversation a few months back. It's an issue that's not as straightforward as you might imagine. On the one hand, you've got personal responsibility. You took out a loan, pay back the loan. 
On the other hand, there's a matter of how that level of debt depresses the entire economy because everybody's using that money to service debt instead of like buying things and stimulating the economy. It's kind of a complex issue. What's not complex is how people feel about it. And it's really interesting. There was a joint poll. It was done between USA Today and Ipsos. And the question was asked, do you support a student debt relief plan? And there were different plans that were proposed, you know, forgive up to $20,000. And then it was forgive the entire student debt, but under a certain income cap. And then it was forgive everything regardless of income. And here's the remarkable thing. It didn't matter what the plan was. What the study found was if you had student debt, you affirmed student debt forgiveness. Why would that be, do you imagine? Well, it's not rocket science, right? People are influenced by their money. They're influenced by their standard of living and by their comfort. And it didn't matter what the plan was, and the levels were different depending on the plan. But it just goes to show you that our finances, our comfort, our money, it plays a significant role in how we navigate complex questions in life, both generally and personally. Not surprising, the Herodians in their day, they said, yeah, pay the tax because they benefited from it. And there's another motivating factor and priority we can look at in this as well. They asked this question, or they, they really flatter Jesus before this question. They say, Jesus, we know that you're a man who tells the truth. You're going to speak the word of God. You're not going to be swayed by other people because you pay no attention to who they are. They're really buttering him up. You pay no attention to who they are. That's not true of everybody. Public opinion is a powerful motivator in our lives. It really is, whether we want to admit it or not. Good case study. We can go back to the year 2020. A whole lot of stuff happened there. But during the George Floyd riots, you can look at people's social media profiles, and profile after profile, they would change their picture to a black square. Hundreds of thousands of people. Or we could go more recently, maybe to a lesser extent, when the Ukrainian war started, Ukrainian flags, that was people's profile picture. Or even more recently, with the Palestinian-Israel conflict, either a Palestinian flag or a Jewish flag, people change their profile pictures to, to these emblems, these symbols. Why would they do that? I mean, we live in Monmouth, Illinois. We're not directly impacted by hardly any of these things. Why would we feel the need to do that? Well, it's because public sentiment is a powerful motivator. We do care what people think. We want to send the right message. Sometimes it's a little more than that. If you remember back to 2020, there was the sentiment that silence is violence. If I don't say the right thing, if I don't lend public support, then somehow I'm complicit in this movement against this cause. You're either for us or against it, so to speak. Public opinion is a powerful motivator. We do care what people think. But we could even hear that, that compliment from the Pharisees, maybe a little different. You pay no attention to who people are. Maybe we do care who people are, maybe not in a broad scale, public opinion kind of way, but in a very specific way. There are people in our lives, friends, family, neighbors, so on, that we deeply care about. And their life and how issues affect them will motivate our decision, decision making as well. Good example of this, if you want to go back in time a little bit, I think it's around 2010, 2012. There's an Ohio senator, his name is Rob Portman, he's a Republican guy, and he was kind of seen as the uh, Republican financial guru of his time. And he had a lot of stances on social issues that were kind of along the Republican line as, as well, including his view on same-sex marriage. But he was also one of the first Republicans to publicly come out and change that view 
largely because his son came out as gay. And he loved his son. And because of an important, significant relationship in his life, that impacted how he navigated a complicated issue. And the same could be said of us. Whether it's that issue or the issue of abortion or an issue of addiction or an issue, well, you pick an issue under the sun. If somebody we know and we love and we care about is impacted by that question and by that complexity, it's going to play a role in how we ourselves think about it and how we navigate it. Because we love them. They're important to us. They're a priority. And as we said, the things that we prioritize in life are going to dictate how we navigate life's complexities. It's just, excuse me, it's just human nature. So for you and I here today, that raises an important question. How do we navigate life's complexities in a God-honoring way? Because we want to do that, right? I assume that's our motivation, our goal, our hope, is to navigate this life in a way that brings glory to God and honors Him and His truth and so on. So how do we do that when life can be so messy at times? Well, as we said, our priorities dictate our decision-making. So if we want to come to God-honoring conclusions, we need to have God-honoring priorities. Or if we want to do that a little different, say it a little different, to honor God in the complexities of our lives, then God has to be given the first priority in our lives. We got to concern ourselves. What does he have to say about this first and foremost? And Jesus shows us what that can look like in the midst of complexities. Let's keep reading this. It's verse 18 where we're going to pick up. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, he said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose description? Inscription, sorry. Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And when they heard this, they were amazed. And so they left him, and they went away. So Jesus notices this is a nuanced issue. He kind of sees their motivations here, and he says, Well, let me see the coin that we would use to pay this tax. It was a Tiberian denarius. It looks like this. Here's a picture of it. Okay, apparently we don't have a picture of it, so let me illustrate it for you. It's a silver coin. Uh, On there is the head of Emperor Tiberius, kind of a profile picture, an inscription on there that says, uh, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. He believed that his father had transcended into godhood upon his death, and so Tiberius is saying, I am the son of God. Kind of a blasphemous sentiment to Jewish people, as you might imagine. And so Jesus takes this coin, and he says, whose image is this? And that's an important word, not whose likeness, not not whose profile. Whose image is this? And they say, well, it's Caesar's, of course, because that's his face, right? Well, if Caesar's image is on this coin, it must be Caesar's coin. So if he wants it back, then go ahead and give him back his coin. But then he goes a little further. And he says, but be sure to give to God what is God's. And he never explains what exactly belongs to God. He just sort of lets it hang there in the ether for us to to meditate on and to think about. The image seems to be the sign of ownership. Caesar's image is on the coin, it's his coin. So then we have to ask the question, church, what bears God's image? It's you and me. And go back to Genesis chapter 1. 
Very first story in the Bible, sixth day of creation. God says, let us make mankind in our own image, in the image of God. Jesus is essentially saying, look, you give to Caesar what belongs to him, but make sure you give yourself to God because you belong to him. And he finds this way to navigate this complex question in a way that that honors governing authorities, corrupt as they were, while not deterring this unwavering loyalty to God. And maybe you and I today, we hear that, we don't fully appreciate the intricacies of what he says here. They certainly did, because it says they were amazed at his answer. And I want to assure you, Jesus is not just kind of sidestepping the issue here and finding a creative solution. He is providing a theologically sound path forward that honors God in the midst of a tricky and difficult complexity of his day and age. And the question that he asks is not, what will this cost me? What will other people think? What will the people I care about think or feel? He doesn't ask about public opinion. He doesn't ask about what he's supposed to say because of his group affiliation. The first question he asks himself is, what does God have to say on a situation like this? And that's a phenomenal model, guys. One that is applicable to you and I today in our world. We've talked about a lot of different complex issues. We've talked about economic things. We've talked about foreign politics. We've talked about social issues. We've talked about interpersonal issues. All kinds of things. Here's the thing with a lot of the complex questions we've mentioned this morning thus far. They probably impact us a little bit. Some of us more than others. But most of these issues, for most of us in this room, they impact us kind of from a distance. The things that we need to know where we stand and how to navigate them, but honestly, they're probably not going to impact our world on Monday very much. But this model that Jesus shows us, it's good for more than just complex social issues. It really is a path forward in the midst of our own personal complex lives, too. I mentioned Christmas earlier and how Christmas can be a messy time of year. Sometimes Christmas is messy because we celebrate it with messy people. Family can be a complex Thing to navigate. I was reading a blog this week from Max Lucado. He was at the lunch with six friends, and while they're at lunch, he asked them a question. He said, give me a word picture that describes a difficult family relationship that you have. And my first thought was, what a weird lunch, right? I've never in my life asked a question like that. Will we go out to Papa's or something? But apparently, if you're Max Lucado, you ask these kinds of questions. And his friends seemed a little confused at first, too, but then they slowly realized what he wanted. So one guy spoke up. He said, a parasite on my neck. I have a brother-in-law, my wife's brother, who can't hold down a job. He's always finding a reason to quit, and yet he always expects us to foot the bill and to bail him out and to support him. Another friend said, a cactus in a silk blouse. My mother, from a distance, seems like a very soft, gentle, you know, snuggly person. But when you really get to know her, you get close, you find out just how prickly and dry she really is. And there were other word pictures his friends started to, to put forth. And maybe as you're hearing this, maybe there's a family relationship that kind of pops into your head. And you've got your own little word picture that kind of describes the mess and the complexity of that relationship. Family can be messy for a host of different reasons. And what really adds to this complexity is the fact that you can't really get away from your family. If it were a neighbor or like a coworker, you could probably avoid them easy enough. Or you could like move, right? 
Maybe extreme, but you could do it. But when it comes to family, they're always there. Every wedding, every funeral, every Christmas, forever. You're stuck with them. So how do we navigate that mess? Before we ask ourselves, what is it going to cost me? And before we ask ourselves, what am I supposed to say? Or what do they want me to say? Or what's, you know, how, how do we navigate that mess? We need to ask ourselves the way Jesus teaches us, does God have anything to say on this? Does God have anything to say on navigating the complex relationships with messy people? Oh my gosh, yes. Like the whole Bible is the story of God navigating a very complex relationship with messy people. The mess comes from our sin. We reject God. We reject the way he created us to live. And we do it in so many different ways, whether it be through physical acts, through inward attitudes, through whatever. We find unique and creative ways of doing evil and distancing ourselves from God. And yet he never abandons his people. He never condemns his people. He never writes them off and says, I'm done with you guys. Figure it out yourselves. I'm out. What he does time and time again is offer his people grace. And sometimes he even has to offer grace through gritted teeth. I think of Moses on the mountain when he comes down with the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets in his hand, and the Israelites are already worshiping an idol that they've created for themselves. And Moses just drops the tablets and shatters on the ground. What are you guys doing? And he goes up on the mountain and he has to plead, God, don't ev eviscerate this people. And through gritted teeth, God says, fine, I'll offer grace, and we'll move forward. And there's a lesson in here for us. It's particularly significant when we realize the messy people are not just the people on the pages of the Bible, but they're the ones sitting in this room right now, the one looking back at us in the mirror. Sometimes to navigate the mess and the complexity of messy relationships we too have to offer a little bit of grace. That's got to be the starting place of our thought process. Because God's grace given through gritted teeth, that's something that we're recipients of as well. Like I said, we, we're messy people. We've rejected God in different ways. We've sinned in different ways. You've got your own unique flavor. I've got my own unique flavor, but we've all done it. And yet, for each and every one of us, God didn't abandon us, didn't condemn us. He didn't say, you figure it out on your own. He sent his son, Jesus, to find us, to call to us, to shepherd us back into his fold, and to make us his own people, to forgive our sins, and to reconcile us. That's a relational term. It means there was a relationship that was strained, that was broken, that was messy, that was healed and brought back together. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. That's why we're here today. And all God does is call us to operate from that starting point in our own lives, to offer that same kind of grace, even if it's through gritted teeth. And I'm not going to lie to you, okay? We're not going to solve the complexities of our family issues in 30 minutes. And offering some grace is not going to fix the mess that we all have to deal with sometimes. But I'll tell you this, without grace as your starting point, we don't stand a prayer of navigating this in a God-honoring way. All we can hope to do is perpetuate the mess. Before we ask about what it's going to cost, before we ask about what we're supposed to say or what they want us to say, 
what we've got to ask ourselves is, does God have anything to say about this? Yeah, offer grace. Grace is that path forward. And I'll let you know this too. It's not just family situations that this model is useful for navigating. We mentioned earlier, some of us have some health concerns. We've got a diagnosis and we're, we're asking the question, how do I navigate this in a God-honoring way? Or maybe we've got a financial struggle that we're in the middle of or a job situation we're in the middle of and we're asking ourselves, how do I navigate this in a way that is faithful and is honoring to God? I'll tell you this, before we consider ourselves with with other priorities or what people think or what group we belong to or what our ideology is or what our financial situation is going to be, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, does God have anything to say on this? Because if we want to offer God-honoring solutions and answers to life's complexities, we have to start from a place of God-honoring priorities. He's got to be first. And that's how we begin to take a step forward and move forward through the complex, nuanced mess that we call life. This morning, I want you to know that this grace that we talked about, it's not just something that's reserved for a few people. It's an open invitation And maybe you're feeling that your life is a little complex, it's a little messy right now, and you feel this gnawing at your spirit that maybe some of this is meant to point you back to the God who wants to make sense of it. I want you to know this invitation for grace is open. All you need to do is take that connection card on the back of the seat in front of you and just write, I want to talk about Jesus. You don't even have to make a decision to follow him today. You just want to figure out what is Jesus all about? What does it mean to follow him? How does grace come through his work? We would love to have that conversation with you. Just fill out that card. Let us know. For the rest of us who've already made that decision to follow Jesus, well, my recommendation is follow Jesus. Not just in moralistic teachings, but in this instance as well. Prioritizing God and asking, what does he have to say on the complexities of my life? Hearing and then doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, and we thank you for the wisdom that you share with us in Scripture. We thank you that you, you provide a lot of answers to the complicated matters that we deal with in life. We find solutions, we find direction, we find focus when we look at the character of Jesus. And time and time again, I'm amazed at how the answer to our complexities and our quandaries is found in his cross and in his humility. And so I pray that we would, like him, humble ourselves to you, to your authority, that we would seek out answers in your word and in your truth, that you would bless us with direction as we just seek to honor you in a complicated world. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things.